Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone's heard the saying that no two snowflakes are ever alike. And this is probably true. This has been called the no two alike conjecture. And it goes something like this. A snowflake is a crystal. And this type of crystal begins with nucleation around a dust particle and continues to increase in size in an unpredictably infinite number of variations thanks to uneven crystal growth as the flake is subjected to a variety of temperatures. Did you get that? Let's say a snowflake is made of 100 water molecules. The number of combinations you can make with 100 water molecules is very, very big. Think of the number 1 followed by 158 zeros. Now consider that the number of atoms in the known universe is the number 1 followed by just 70 zeros. So we're talking really big numbers here. However, the no-two-alike conjecture only applies to large snow crystals. Before a snowflake can get big, it has to be small. They're called nano-snowflakes and consist of just a tiny number of water molecules. And scientists who study crystallography, which is the study of crystals, believe that, yes, it is possible for two nano-snowflakes to be alike. Okay, now let's apply the no-two-alike conjecture to music. If we're going to get into metaphors, a classical symphony would be like a fully formed, ultra-complex, crystalline snowflake. However, a rock or pop song, which contains only a very few notes that can be arranged in only a very limited number of ways, would be like a nano-snowflake. Therefore, it should be theoretically possible for two rock or pop songs to sound alike. They may have grown independently many, many, many miles apart, but their basic structure is the same. The result is what I like to call an unfortunate sonic coincidence. And let me show you what I mean. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome to part two of a program that explores the reasons why certain songs end up sounding the same and what happens as a result. Okay, can we play a little bit of the Beatles' Lady Madonna, please? A little blues boogie featuring Paul McCartney, 1968. Number one hit in the UK, number four in North America. Very well-known Beatles single. Lady Madonna, children at your feet. Wonder how you managed to make ends meet. You got that? Okay, keep that melody in your head because we'll be back to discuss in just a second. First, though... We have to hear from Sublime. That's Sublime with their big hit from 1996, What I Got. Let's compare again, shall we? First, The Beatles. Lady Madonna, 
now, Sublime. Early in the morning, rising to the street. Light me up that cigarette and I'll strap shoes on my feet. Two songs from two different genres, from two different countries, from two different decades, and yet they sound very, very similar. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross. And like I said, this is part two of a program called An Unfortunate Sonic Coincidence, or as we shall see, Outright Cases of Plagiarism. Now, plagiarism is when you willfully pass off someone else's work as your own without ever acknowledging the original creator. That could be a college essay that you bought on the internet, or it could be it could be a song that you wrote by liberally borrowing elements from a song that had already been written. But let's be very careful here. Just because two songs sound similar doesn't necessarily mean that someone is ripping off someone else. Remember how the no two alike conjecture that we talked about breaks down when you're only dealing with a handful of things that can be varied, like musical notes. Now, there are only so many ways that the 12 notes of our musical scale can be combined in a pleasing manner. And since rock music has its own set of rules and aesthetics, that number falls even further. So in short, 60 years after the birth of rock and roll, we may be running out of riffs and melodies. Rock is starting to repeat itself. Or at least that's what some would believe. Now, I have a theory as to why some classic rock artists will never die. And it goes something like this. There was a period in the 1960s and early 1970s when guitar amplifier and recording studio technology entered the modern age. Things began to sound just like they sound today from a sonic perspective. The audio quality of a Led Zeppelin record from 1971 is pretty much indistinguishable from the audio quality of a U2 record of today. However, at that time, late 60s, early 70s, rock was still relatively young. It meant that it was still developing. People were still experimenting. And that meant that all the good riffs and melodies that make up rock and roll were still waiting to be discovered. And just because they were around, bands like the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath got to all the best rock riffs and rock melodies first. It's an accident of the space-time continuum. Call it an accident of birth. Some very talented musicians were just lucky enough to be born at a time when all the best and most basic rock riffs and melodies were about to go up for grabs. And once they claimed them, they were theirs forever. And of course, the Beatles were the very, very, very best at this. They sucked up an amazing number of great melodies. And as a result, it can be very hard for today's bands not to sound like the Beatles. I mean, just ask Noel Gallagher and Oasis. Or you can ask The Offspring. Let's start with a little Beatles again, please. This is also from 1968. Very, very basic melody in the key of C. Just about any novice can plunk this one out on a piano. You got that? Obla dee, obla da. Okay. Here's The Offspring from 1998. The Offspring with Why Don't You Get a Job? It's essentially a basic variation of Obla dee, obla da. Is that plagiarism? 
Well, hardly. No one would be dumb enough to plagiarize the most famous rock band of all time, but what we've ended up with, nevertheless, is an unfortunate sonic coincidence. Here's one more, I think, that illustrates my theory of how some of the big bands of the 60s and 70s got all the good riffs first. These are the Rolling Stones in the spring of 1971. Okay, the song is Brown Sugar. It's from the Sticky Fingers album. Okay, just listen carefully. Okay, get the groove on. Okay, pay attention to Keep's guitar and the tempo. Okay. Okay, you got that? All right. These are the Dandy Warhols from Portland, Oregon. In 2000, they released an album called 13 Tales from Urban Bohemia, and it contained this single. Is there anything that you notice about it? The Dandy Warhols with Bohemian Like You, a substantial alt-rock hit from 2000. Great song, but the fact that it sounded a lot like Brown Sugar from the Rolling Stones did not escape attention. Let's quickly talk about Iggy Pop. His biggest song remains Lust for Life, which has made millions for Iggy through things like cruise ship commercials. This is a pretty ubiquitous song. The track dates back to 1977, when Iggy was cleaning up and drying out and detoxing in Berlin with his buddy David Bowie. The drum beat from Lust for Life was actually, um, well, it was actually appropriated from the musical beat found in the theme song of a nightly German news program. However, the beats are so basic that it's very hard to claim exclusive ownership of something like that. I mean, just ask Bo Diddley. Anyway, such was the case when Australia's Jet released Are You Gonna Be My Girl? in 2003. To it, Iggy. Okay, Iggy Pop, Lust for Life, 1977. And now Jet from 2003. You be the judge. So what happens in a case when someone notices that two songs sound very, very much alike? Do the composers and publishers and lawyers let it slide and pass it off as a mere coincidence? Not necessarily. I'm not saying that what I'm about to tell you happened with the three examples we've heard so far, but I can tell you that it has happened to someone I know personally. The bands involved in my little story here were superstars in their day, and they sold millions upon millions of albums and singles. Together with two other people, my friend wrote a song that appeared on an album in 1985. Not only did the album go multi-platinum, but the song he co-wrote was released as a single and reached well into the top 20 on the singles chart, so he got a nice little paycheck. A couple years later, he gets a call. This is a call from a manager of a band in Europe. Uh, hi, he said. My band is just about to release an album that we expect will be very, very big worldwide. However... It has come to our attention that one of the songs on this record has certain pronounced melodic and structural similarities to the song that you wrote for this band in 85. Now, they, they didn't deliberately rip you off. It's just that they independently discovered this same melody and structure. It's too late for us to go back and change it, so we would like to cut a deal. 
So here's how it worked. In exchange for not suing this band from Europe, my friend ended up with a basic piece of the action of this new song. The more the album sold, the more he got. If the song was released as a single, he got more. And the higher the song reached on the charts, the bigger the checks. So sweet, huh? But it gets better. The album by this European group eventually sold 8 million copies. And the song in question was released as a single, and it went all the way to number one in America. So my buddy ended up getting some major league royalty checks, and I'm sure these checks continue to this day, and he got them for a song that he didn't write. For him, this unfortunate sonic coincidence turned out to be very fortunate. And I have a feeling that these sorts of deals happen a lot in the music biz. It's a very effective way of keeping things quiet and keeping the peace. When we come back, we'll look at some real accusations of plagiarism and how things can get really, really nasty. Welcome back to part two of a show I'm calling an unfortunate sonic coincidence. Situations where two songs sound alike and what happens as a result. Like I said earlier, to accuse someone of plagiarism is a very, very serious thing. It's theft. It casts doubt on your character, your ethics, and your morality. And when it comes to music, your personal, individual creativity is attacked. And as an artist, you might as well be stabbed in the heart and find out that somebody's ripping off your stuff. And the bigger you get, and the more your music is heard, the greater the risk of someone accusing you of something. And it comes from the strangest places. Take the case of New Order and their 1990 song called Run. Let's set the stage. New Order, descendants of Joy Division, two of the most influential bands in the history of modern rock. And they ended up getting sued by John Denver? Remember him, the American folk singer who wrote songs like Rocky Mountain High and Take Me Home Country Road? Yeah, he, he, that guy, he wrote this song too. Let me lay down beside you. In 1990, John Denver, this cute little folk singer who looked like a Muppet, nailed New Order with a plagiarism suit and won. See, back in the fall of 1969, one of his songs became a number one hit for the folk group Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's called Leavin' on a Jet Plane. You've probably heard this, well, many times before. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I don't Okay, you got that? Now let me play you Run from New Order so you can hear what the judge heard. But I know that I'm okay Cause you're here with me today I haven't got a single problem New Order and Run, a single from their 1990 album Technique. Do you hear the similarities between that and the song John Denver wrote for Peter, Paul, and Mary? New Order did which is why they didn't even bother to fight the charges of plagiarism. They just went with an undisclosed out-of-court settlement, some kind of deal to make it all go away. Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails was surprised with the plagiarism suit, too. On August 18, 1997, he was notified that an L.A. musician named Mark Onofrio had accused Trent of stealing six of his songs. The allegations were that Onofrio met Trent during an internet chat session and offered to send him songs that he had recorded under the name Elephant Man. 
A tape was allegedly mailed to Trent's home. Then, in 1994, Onofrio said that he was shocked to find that five songs in the downward spiral sounded suspiciously similar to his Elephant Man compositions. He says, Closer, Hurt, March of the Pigs, Mr. Self-Destruct, and Downward Spiral are all rip-offs of Elephant Man. Then there's the song Burn that Trent contributed to the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. He charged Trent with copyright infringement and unfair competition. A trial was set for February of 1998 and then delayed until that December. The judge thought that both parties might, uh, you know, want to make a deal and avoid the whole court case thing. But then Onofrio dropped his claims on three of the songs, but insisted on proceeding with damages based on the other three. Everything finally ended up before a federal judge on December 1st, 1998, at which point the case was thrown out. As a point of interest, Trent's lawyer in the case was Charles B. Ortner, who is based out of New York. He specializes in this kind of thing. Among his other cases have been the infamous U2 versus Negative Land issue, where he took U2's side and won, defending Da Vinci Code author Dan Brown against plagiarism charges, and he won, and helping one of the major movie studios shut down Grokster. Remember them, the peer-to-peer file trading people? And he won. In other words, if you need someone in a plagiarism case, no matter what side you're on, Charles B. Ortner is a guy to have on your team. Right, Trent? Nine Inch Nails and Closer, a song that a judge confirmed was definitely and undoubtedly written by Trent Reznor. I have one more thing on the issue of plagiarism, and it's a simple question. Can you plagiarize yourself? I'll save the suspense. Yes, you can. And you can get sued for it. And you could lose. It's bizarre, but true. Hold tight. A couple of minutes ago, I posed this question. Can a songwriter be sued for ripping off himself? The answer is, yes, he can. John Fogarty was the founder, lead singer, and chief songwriter for Creedence Clearwater Revival. Wrote some great songs and had many, many hits. Then the band broke up and John went solo. Then, in 1985, John released a solo record called Center Field, and it too did very, very well. But then John was served with a lawsuit alleging plagiarism. It said that he had stolen the melodies for some of the songs on Center Field. Although John had written the songs for Credence, the copyrights, the ownership of the songs he had written, had been given over to a guy named Saul Zantz. This guy ran Credence's record label. Now, John gave Saul all this stuff just to get out of his contract. John would rather give up ownership of his songs rather than stay working for Saul Zantz and Fantasy Records. There was a lot of loathing on both sides. Things got weird when the Center Field album came out. It featured a song called Zantz Can't Dance. It was clearly directed at John's old boss. Well, then Saul freaked out, got all bent out of shape, and then he sued John for plagiarism, alleging that a song on Center Field called Old Man Down the Road, which John owned, sounded just like an old CCR song called Run Through the Jungle, which Saul owned as the result of the contract dispute. In other words, an artist was sued for plagiarizing himself. Fortunately, the judge in the case decided not to set a precedent and threw things out, largely because John brought his guitar to court 
and sat on the stand showing the judge and the jury the differences between the songs. This brings me to Nickelback. Millions of records sold, hundreds of millions in pure profit, and they've done it by sticking to a very tried and true formula when it comes to songwriting. I mean, it ain't broke, it need not be fixed, right? However, should Chief Nickelback dude Chad Kruger ever find himself in the same situation as John Fogarty, he'd probably have to defend himself in much the same way. Not that I'm saying it'll ever happen, but I would just like to illustrate something. Let me play you something that's been drifting around on the internet. There is nothing wrong with your radio, nothing wrong with your stereo, nothing wrong with your speakers. In your left speaker, you will hear How You Remind Me. In the right, you will hear Someday. Go. If you want to hear more, just launch a Google search for Nickelback and you'll find it. Like I said earlier, rock is starting to repeat itself. Pop and hip-hop are suffering from much the same thing. There's a really nasty case right now featuring Timbaland in a song he produced for Nelly Furtado. Now, this is all documented on Wikipedia and YouTube, but I can give you a bit of a summary. In August 2000, a musician from Finland named Jan Tempest Suni recorded a track called Acid Jazzed Evening. It kind of sounds like what would happen if you took the old Pac-Man theme and gave it an electropop twist. Suni entered the track into an electronic arts festival in Helsinki, and he won. Then, about two years later, this would be around Christmas of 2002, a Norwegian programmer covered the song with permission and posted the result online. In January 2005, Timbaland gets a gig creating original ringtones for MTV. One of his ringtones is called Block Party, it sounds a lot like the cover done by the Norwegian guy. Then, in June of 2006, Natalie Furtado releases her Loose album, which was produced by Timbaland. Almost immediately, some people began to hear similarities between the song Do It and Sunni's Acid Jazzed Evening, which is when the accusations of plagiarism began to fly. The screams got even louder when, in November of 2006, MTV did a documentary on Timbaland. A shot of his personal recording studio reveals a piece of equipment, a rare keyboard synthesizer, that is capable of playing the same music file as the cover posted by the Norwegian dude. And if you want to see the kind of outrage this has caused, go to YouTube and search for Producer Timbaland Rips Song from Finnish Musician. I swear to God, <laughs> we're all running out of songs. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.